I think leadership really is about creating a ladder to bring other people up. And so if you are in a position that you could provide communication training for people in your team, you know, I think that's one of the best things that you could do. A lab head who says, I'm learning this too, but I think it's really important that we all have the skills to share our work with different audiences in different ways. Let's get some training together. And I think that's remarkable leadership. You're listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Parlow. And after 15 years working as a professional screenwriter, director, storyteller, I'm now on a mission to help make sure that incredible research generates real-world impact with the help of effective engagement and communication. So this podcast series brings together some of the best research communicators in the world, professional science communicators, researchers who have world-class experience with engagement on television, on the radio. And I'm also gonna bring in some left of field people, comedians who specialize in science comedy, storytellers who are fascinated by research, lots and lots of amazing people who can make sure that your research communications and engagement are gonna help you achieve your goals. In today's episode, we're doing a deep dive with Associate Professor Jen Martin. She founded the Science Communication Teaching Program at the University of Melbourne, I knew I had to have her on as one of our first guests because she has so much experience and she's dedicated her life to teaching researchers how to communicate effectively. And on top of that, she's also an incredible science communicator in her own right. She's currently the Vice President of Australian Science Communicators. She's been talking weekly about science on 3RRR, which is Australia's largest community radio station for more than 15 years. And she's also the author of popular science book, why am I like this? Our conversation covers a heck of a lot. We talk about the why, why it's so important for researchers to communicate effectively. There are some benefits uh, you're probably aware of already, but there are some benefits that may surprise you. We're going to talk about how you can build your confidence and get your start, because I know it can be a little bit daunting the first time you step on stage or step into uh, the booth on radio. She's also going to talk a bit about her work with Homeward Bound, which is an amazing organization. And she has some specific advice for female and non-binary researchers, as well as how research organizations can create a safe space for communication and connection. It's a really incredible conversation. I'm so grateful to Jen. Stay tuned, friends, and enjoy. Associate Professor Jen Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm very excited to have you. There's a million things we could talk about. And we're not going to cover it all today, so I suggest listeners go and, if they haven't already, subscribe to your podcast, Let's Talk Psycom. How many episodes are there now? Well, you just told me. I'm glad you know, because I can't remember. I think it's 60-odd, right? Yes, yeah, 60-odd. 60-odd yeah. uh, gold-filled episodes. So listeners, after you listen to this episode, get on down and listen to that. I think we should start with some fundamentals. Mm -hmm. So the tagline of that podcast is, we believe that science isn't finished until it's communicated. Mm -hmm. That is a quote from... Uh, so Mark Walport, who was the former chief government science advisor in the UK, and it's part of a longer speech, mm. but that's from him. Science isn't finished until it's communicated, and we just absolutely stole it. I mean, we do credit it to him, but it's a really nice short tagline yeah, yeah. to kind of summarise what we believe and what I'm sure you believe too. Definitely. Mm. Okay, so I'd like to hear it from you. Why is it so essential? Why should researchers be out there communicating their work? I'm going to answer that by just briefly telling you how I went from being a scientist to someone who was passionate about science communication, because I didn't even really know what science communication was. You know, there's a lot of people now who get into science communication as an undergrad student or as a master's or PhD student. At that stage, I didn't even know it was a thing. I'd mm. never heard of it. 
My experience was that I spent a lot of my childhood in nature, had a really wonderful time. My dad was a field biologist. I got to spend lots of time with him, you know, lots of camping, lots of time outdoors. And I grew up with this really strong sense of what I want to contribute in the Mm. world is nature conservation, biodiversity conservation. So unsurprisingly, I ended up doing a science degree, ended up in research, doing field ecology and had a remarkable time working in a forest, getting to know a species of possum really well, looking at their behavior, you know, really wonderful stuff. But I kind of got to the end of all that and started to have really major misgivings about the value of what I was doing. And mm. and I've grown up to sort of always have a sense of my privilege and always a sense that, you know, how fortunate I am to have had access to a great education. You know, I'm white, I speak English as a first language, all of those things. And so I had this strong sense of I want to do something useful in the world and, and nature conservation seemed like a really good, useful thing. But then, you know, you get towards the end of your PhD and what the university is telling you to do is to publish academic papers mm. and go to academic conferences. What was really clear to me was that the only way the information that I'd collected over many, many years working in this forest, the only way that knowledge would have any impact in the real world on the conservation of this species or our understanding of the behaviour of this species was that if I was sharing it with local farmers, local land managers, local politicians, local children, if I was just writing academic papers, none of the people who might have any role in caring for the land that these animals needed or have any role Mm. in making decisions about how forest is managed, none of them would ever read those papers. And I'm, you know, I am simplifying that a little bit, but that's how I felt as a PhD student. And so, you know, I kind of got to the stage of thinking, well, what's the point then? And I identified that what I really wanted to be doing, as well as writing the academic papers, I'm very happy to do that. But as well as that, I need to be talking with a whole lot of other people. And it really struck me that I had no idea how to do that. No one had ever Mm. given me any opportunity, you know, to learn, to have training in how to write about technical ideas for non-technical audiences. Um, And, you know, I really kind of started to reflect on the fact that science, I think, is quite an elitist practice. We're trained to write in ways that no one else can understand. Mm. We're trained to use language that is really inaccessible for people who haven't had the privilege of that education. And so I thought, well, hang on, why has no one taught me this? And meanwhile, I came in on a one-year contract, a a teaching position straight out of my PhD. I'd done a lot of teaching during my PhD, absolutely adored teaching, came into a one-year academic position and started being the person who put their hand up in meetings and said, excuse me, why don't we teach communication skills to our science students. It seems really fundamental to me that if their work is to have relevance in the real world, they need to be able to do that. And and not just that, there's a really clear leverage that to get a job, mm. you need to be a good communicator. We have very clear market research that shows that the number one skill employers are looking for is communication skills. But when I kept kind of asking this question, inevitably the response that I got from the powers that be was something along the lines of, look, you don't have to teach that stuff. They just pick it up by osmosis. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. I don't think we pick up skills by osmosis. Um, I think arguing that, oh, but, you know, all science students have to write as part of their degree. Of course, they become good writers. They become good writers for other scientific audiences. And that's a very different style of writing than is required in most other situations. Sometimes just good writers for researchers in their own discipline, not even people in other disciplines. Exactly. So it really led me to have this kind of major revelation, I suppose, Mm. that perhaps rather than working as a researcher out in the field, doing, you know, absolutely what I love, spending time in nature, working with animals, that 
perhaps the impact that I might have doing that would be fairly narrow compared to the impact I might have if I could generate some situation in which science students could get communications training. And, and what I envisaged from the very beginning was quite different to what most people think of when you say you teach science communication. So most people's perception of that I've discovered over the years is that you have a dedicated science communication course mm-hmm. where somebody comes in and comes out as a qualified science communicator. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm not knocking that in any way. I think there's absolutely a place for that. But my vision was always that rather than training dedicated science communicators, instead, what we needed to do was make sure that as many science students as possible got at least some basic training in how to craft a narrative, how to engage an audience, how to drop the jargon, you know, how to bring people in and make science more accessible and how to invite people in so that even people who haven't had the privilege of a science education feel included and feel like science is relevant and meaningful to them. So that's what I've been building for 15 years now, I suppose. And, and I guess, you know, there are many arguments as to why it's important, but at the end of the day, the vast majority of scientific research, at least in Australia, is publicly funded. Mm. It's funded by taxpayers. I would argue then we are ethically obliged to make sure that any taxpayer out on the street can find out what their money has done. Yeah. What did you What did you do in your research? What did you find out? What does it mean? And if all we do is publish in academic journals and speak with other academics at conferences, I think we are absolutely missing the point that we need to make sure everyone can get access to that information if they want to. 100% agree with that. Uh, I was at one of the research centres I'm working with at the moment just yesterday, and one of the researchers said, I'm not particularly good at publishing papers. I prefer to actually do things, which I thought was <laughs> oh, that's a, a, awesome. a pretty funny hot take. Now, in the 15 years since you established uh, this teaching program at the University of Melbourne, are things starting to shift? Are people starting to open up when they think about impact and the types of activities that they need to do? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and to clarify, I think I only got my first subject up in maybe 2010, okay. but, but there was a couple of years of a lot of behind-the-scenes yeah, yeah. work and kind of campaigning <laughs> before that happened, so I guess it's not quite 15 years. Yeah, look, I think there's been a huge shift. I know that I am not alone. I had the great um, fort- good fortune of attending a, a symposium in Venice, of all places, a couple of months ago, which was an international symposium run by the PCST, which stands for the Public Communication of Science and Technology, so an international science communication um, organisation. And that symposium brought together people whose job it is, is to run communication training programs for scientists based in academic and research institutions. And it was just the best. I've never been at a conference in my life where, you know, every single person there had shared passions, interests, experiences, you know, we, it was just absolutely amazing. Beautiful. But what we discovered there was that it is, it really is a universal experience that mm-hmm. communication programs for scientists are, have been under, you know, underfunded, undersupported, undervalued. I'm not alone in having taken a really long time to establish the program that we now run here. It's very, very common. And so part of what came out of that symposium was a written document that we all contributed to really making the value proposition for directors, vice chancellors, Mm. people at the head of these organisations to say, this is why giving your scientists access to communication training is so important. This is what it's going to bring your organisation or your institution if you do that. So I think it's absolutely shifting the fact right. that a conference like that happens. Yeah. 
the fact that a letter like that exists, the fact that people from all over the world are coming together to say, what can we learn from one another about how we've gone about establishing these these training and teaching programs? So there's no question that it's improving, but I think it's been slow. Um, and I think you know the fact that a conference like that is needed suggests that there's still a long way to go in having communication training just absolutely expected and accessible to anyone who wants it. So if you're a researcher or a scientist at the University of Melbourne, they can access your specific courses. Is that what you would suggest is the first step for an ECR? Look, I think there's lots and lots of things that people can do, and I'm not going to suggest for a second that what we do is the be-all and end-all. What we've done is made communication training accessible for undergraduate science students and master's-level science students at the University of Melbourne. PhD students can also get permission from Mm -hmm. their supervisors to do subjects with us or a subject with us. Uh, We also run a lot of workshops. So anyone who's listening who says, oh, look, my research group would really benefit from a session on how to give a better talk or how to write for non-scientific audiences or how to use social media more effectively to make our work visible. You know, we run workshops on all of those things. And the podcast that you suggested, the whole reason we made the podcast is because sometimes we can't meet the demand for those workshops. And so the podcast is a way of saying, if you just want some basic advice and suggestions and food for thought about a particular topic, go and listen to this podcast episode. It's only half an hour long. It's pretty conversational, pretty easy listening. Listen to it on your commute. And then potentially, if you've got more specific things you need help with, then we can run a workshop, but we don't have to cover all the basics. We can run a shorter workshop that doesn't go over all of the kind of ground level stuff and we can get straight into more specifics. Beautiful. But, you know, there are other places to get training too. So I'm not going to say ours is the only or the best. I think what we do, we do well and we've made training accessible for particular cohorts here at the university. But you know, there, there's media training workshops around the place. There's lots of great advice. You know, there's books, there's other podcasts. You know, I just think the most important thing is making the decision. Mm-hmm. This is something that's important. This is something that's going to stand me in really good stead for my career to improve my communication skills and recognizing that it's a, you know, it's a lifelong process. You don't suddenly wake up one day and tick the box and say, yep, I'm a master communicator now. I mean, I still make myself listen back to every radio segment I've ever done and I've been doing live radio for nearly 20 years because every time I listen back, I learn something about how Mm. I can do it better. So this is a process. It's an iterative process of being courageous, having a go, putting yourself out there, getting some feedback, thinking about how you could do it better, always tailoring our messages as effectively as we can for different audiences, not just churning out the same PowerPoint or the same whatever it is that we prepared once, you know, six months ago for one audience. It's recognising that this is a craft and this is proper work and this is mm. important work and this is work that we have to think of as part of our workloads, that just doing the research I, I don't think is enough. Listeners, Jen just dropped so many gems <laughs> right there. You may <laughs> want to hit that uh, back 30-second button a couple of times and re-listen to that and take notes because you just covered so many fundamentals. Absolutely love that. Okay, so if you're early in your career, you may be able to access a program like yours. Yep. It sounds like the key takeaway there is there's a wealth of knowledge, whether it's books, podcasts, workshops, actual university subjects, and just make that decision and take that first step, ideally as early in your career as possible. Yeah, and just recognize that you will never waste time practicing your communication skills and recognizing that we are all constant learners. I mean, Mm. if communicating was easy, I wouldn't have a job or either that or I'd be really, really, really rich because, you know, I'd have some magic (laughs) recipe that I'd just share with people. You know, it's a, 
it's a complicated thing. Yeah. Um, and I know we're going to come to this later, but, you know, I've just spent a month on a ship with people from all over the world in a really enclosed pod environment, you know, on a ship. Um, communication is always challenging. You know, listening carefully, listening respectfully, thinking about the words that you use, thinking about how to include people, um, thinking about how we can take into account different perspectives, thinking about words that we might think are really obvious but actually are actively excluding other people from understanding. You know, I think communication is a really beautiful craft, but it's not something that you pick up by osmosis. It's not something that most of us are naturally good at. It's not something you're ever going to just tick the box and say, yep, that one's done. It's just something that we always have to work on. But making that commitment to say this is something important enough that I am going to work on it I think it's just essential for all of us. I mean, the world is in strife. Mm. Most of us do research that we are doing because we believe we want to make a difference. We, we ask our students at the start of every semester, why are you studying science? And no one ever says, because it's fun or because I want to be rich or because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Every single person says, because I want to make a difference in the world. Mm. I want to do something useful in the time I have on the planet. And if we can't communicate about what we're doing, I think it's really difficult to, to have that impact. 100%. Now, over the last few minutes, you've mentioned a couple of times practice and reflection and iteration. Yep. Now, my background originally is a director. Awesome. And just, just uh, the idea of you listening back to all those years worth of uh, radio tape, not everyone's going to be up for that. Some people mm. are going to be cringing at the sound of their own voice. Everyone cringes <laughs> at the sound of their own voice. Anyone listening to this, <laughs> trust me, I'll be listening back to this cringing constantly. But you can kind of separate yourself from it and just mm. kind of grow up a bit and say, I hate the sound of my own voice, but let's just get past it. Yeah. I've also found if you have a trusted friend or colleague, you can kind of tag team mm. and you can give them some sensitive and targeted feedback and they can do yep. the same for you. Agree. Any other tips on how to... Dip your toes in the water and not want to just absolutely despair and look into the void because you feel like you're so uh, you're so far out of your depth. How can you start small and iterate and get better step by step? So I think being really clear on what frightens you mm. and not forcing yourself to do the mo most frightening stuff first. So, you know, there are people who are really comfortable making selfie videos because they've been doing it since they were, you know, nine years old. Just, you know, I've got a 12-year-old daughter. She has no qualms. She's been making videos with her friends for years and years and years. Someone my age might find that really stressful and really hard. I, I think pick the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, if you find speaking relatively, you know, okay, you don't find public speaking too difficult, then find a way to stretch yourself and find a different audience to speak with. If writing is something that you really enjoy or you've had some experience with, maybe, you know, whether it's the conversation, whether it's pursuit mm. here at the university, I mean, there are lots of ways you can write for different audiences. So I think be graceful with yourself and be gentle with yourself and not put yourself way out there in a way that's going to be really stressful because if you do have a negative experience, unless you are very, very robust, you know, and resilient, chances are then it's going to turn you off again. Um the other thing I would say is try and find a safe space. If you're someone who does get multiple invitations to do things, you don't have to say yes to them all. Mm. Find, find the opportunity or the person or the place or the situation where you feel like your, your questions will be carefully answered. So, for example, how many people will be there? What sort, of, you know, what sort of people will be in the audience? How long will I have? How big a room will it be? You know, all those sorts of things that will help you to feel much more confident and well-prepared. 
make sure you can get answers to those questions. And if somebody is asking you to do those things and doesn't have the time to give you the answers, then I would just politely decline and say, I'm really sorry, I can't help you this time. So I think it's okay to seek out opportunities that feel like a stretch, feel like a challenge, feel like you're going to learn and grow from, but aren't just so utterly terrifying Mm. that if it goes badly, you're going to be, you know, really scarred about it. I think that's great advice because if all you're doing is imagining the most high stakes engagement or comms opportunities possible, it can be really paralyzing, right? But there are plenty of opportunities that are lower stakes, that are friendly, that are supportive, that you can dip your toes in the water and start to get those reps in. Yeah. And I would say if if nothing else appeals to you, have a go speaking to primary school students. I mean, I know people might think that that's stressful too, but my experience of primary school students is that they are so interested in hearing about different things. They ask fabulous questions because they have no filter. They're not at all concerned about, you know, being seen to be dumb or whatever. So you just get amazing questions. And I don't know, if, you know, if you've got a teacher who can help you kind of manage the classroom behavior, generally, in my experience, that's not your job. You're not there to manage <laughs> classroom behavior. There'll be a teacher in the room to help yeah. with that. And, you know, your whole talk might be six minutes or something, you know, Mm. like particularly younger kids, you're not going in there to talk for an hour. And, I mean, I've just had some of the best experiences of my life talking to primary school kids. I remember it was not that long ago, a little grade two girl coming up to me afterwards saying, I didn't know girls could be scientists. Oh, my goodness. And I nearly burst into tears because we think that we've moved on from that, right? We think that that's not something that's out there in in our relatively wealthy society anymore. But, you know, this gorgeous girl saying, like, yeah, I didn't know that a girl could be a scientist. And, you know, wow. that's that's a useful impact to have with my time compared to some other things I could do with my time. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's kind of heartbreaking, but also what a beautiful moment yeah. that you got to have. Yeah. I can't think of a better segue uh, to talk about Homeward Bound. Yeah. So Homeward Bound is a global leadership initiative which basically says the world is in strife and scientists or people in STEM, STEM STEM-M, so science, technology, engineering, maths, medicine, these are some of the very best people who are going to contribute to the solutions that we need for our planet. And Men make fabulous leaders, but women and non-binary people also make fabulous leaders and generally get fewer opportunities to be leaders, particularly within STEM M fields. So let's provide a training program that gives women and non-binary people the opportunity to become really skilled, strategic, visible, effective leaders and bring them together with the shared vision of treating the earth as our home and contributing to a sustainable future. So Homeward Bound has been running for, I think, about eight years now, something like that, and generally consists of around 11 months of online training. So it is global. We, we have people from all over the world. And then the idea is that you meet in person for a month at the end of that training program in Antarctica. So I've just come back from that voyage a couple of days ago. So we had hundred, just over 100 women and non-binary people from 29 countries we meet in Ushuaia, which is the southernmost uh, town in the whole world at the very bottom of Argentina, and spend three weeks on a ship in the Antarctic Peninsula together. And 
that in itself is difficult, right? Because people are quite justified in saying, well, if you're all about saving the planet, how can you justify the carbon involved in traveling to Mm. Antarctica? And that's something we take very, very seriously and talk about pretty much nonstop. Uh, The reason why Antarctica is so impactful is because it removes people from their day-to-day lives. Um, Picture particularly many women and non-binary people are in a lot, you know, a lot of caring roles. If you're taken out of your day-to-day busyness and given that opportunity to really change your whole perspective, um, it really makes a massive difference. And coupled with the fact that Antarctica is really, I think, one of the very few places in the world where climate change is, is very visible. And so you are forced to absolutely reckon with constant existential crises of Mm, what are we doing to the planet and what action am I going to take? And so a lot of Homeward Abound is around what can we do together? So one of our key taglines is stronger together because Mm. potentially as individuals, we can't change the planet. But by coming together with these really diverse technical skills across the STEM fields, as well as really honed leadership skills, And, you know, we've got people who, yes, are researchers, but we also have people who work in any number of other fields, bring them together with a shared vision of wanting to make a difference to the future. Um, And, you know, magic happens, particularly with melting icebergs all around you. Mm. Wow. Wow. What an incredible (laughs) experience. Yeah, it is. It's pretty remarkable. I feel very fortunate. So I'm a member of the teaching faculty. So on our ship, we had, I think, 12 of us, maybe 12, 13 of us who are members of the teaching faculty. And our job is to facilitate and run the program while absolutely creating a safe and inclusive space for our participants to also run part of that program. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, Mother Nature really controls the whole thing because any plan you make has to be adjusted 5, 10, 15 times according to where the wind is, where the storms are. You know, it's a really incredible example of leading in a changing world because Antarctica is just changing Mm. constantly all the time and you have to be very, very adaptable and responsive and resilient because no matter what plan you make, it's always going to have to adapt to what happens that day, that minute. It's a great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. So, you know, I've literally just flown back a couple of days ago. I'm absolutely full of the, both the joy and the exhilaration and the absolute magic of working with a group of people like that for a month, but also the absolute heartbreak of seeing and so this is the second time I've been part of the faculty I had the great privilege of also traveling to Antarctica at the end of 2019 just before COVID hit Um, and even in that time climate change has really Mm. become a lot more visible and it really leaves you with a sense of absolute urgency that we need to make changes and we need to make them fast and I feel so proud to be part of this global initiative that you know is trying is Mm. trying to make some of those changes. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of what the teaching program uh, involves and any advice you may have for listeners, I really just want to highlight that last point that you've made about the visibility. Mm. I think this is an element of communication or engagement that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And I was watching uh, some lectures of the physicist Susie Shee. And I think she's fabulous. She's fantastic. And I think she's really good at this about using place and really clear visualizations to help make a point. And it's great if you can write a wonderful paper or you can be on the radio and express things in a really concise way. But we have all these other tools at our disposal. And again, I'm thinking about my film background. Yeah. I'm talking about the lighting. I'm talking about yeah. the you know, art direction. I'm talking about the location. 
even really simple interactions, like you mentioned um, earlier, you know, being in a ship that's that's you know that's a specific environment to communicate mm-hmm. in. If you want to make people feel inspired, even if it's just your own research group, maybe don't pick a really dim, depressing, uh, windowless meeting room to have that interaction. Yeah, 100%. And I think you're also alluding to the fact that all of our senses come into play when we communicate. So, you know, yes, visual is incredibly important and we would always encourage people to prioritise visuals. You know, if you're making a PowerPoint deck, please make sure there's not too many words on them. Yes, please. But, but you know, sounds are really important mm. too. Um, and in Antarctica, sound is absolutely essential. And smell, you know, Antarctica has a really distinctive smell. I mean, you know, if you're really? close to a penguin colony, it stinks. <laughs> but just this kind of, you know, freshness that and, – and maybe it's partly psychological, you know, if you're looking out on this completely vast white landscape that mm. you feel like is, is untouched, as much as that's not true, of course. Antarctica is not untouched at all, but it's easy to imagine that it's rather less touched than most places in the world. And because it's cold, you know, you get kind of just this, yeah, it's almost a smell of absence wow. rather than anything else. It's, it's fascinating. Okay, now I want to do a whole episode just about <laughs> engaging all the senses. <laughs> let's do it. Let's, all right, let's put a post-it note up for that one. <laughs> What can you uh, what can you tell the listeners out there who are female or non-binary? Where should they start? Oh, look, there's you know th- there's a million ways to start. I would say probably one of the best places to start, I believe, is to find a tribe of people to support you. Depending on where you work, what field you're in, what institution or, or other workplace you're in, and what that workplace culture is like, it may feel very lonely, mm. and it may feel like you are really lacking support. Uh, I just know that there is always support out there, whether that's joining a, a, an initiative like Homeward Bound, whether that's joining your local, you know, women in engineering group, whether that's being part of a pride action group, you know, whatever it is, I think we are, or, or my perception, and I'm really sorry if someone's listening and feels like, look, I've looked and those groups don't exist. I could be wrong, but my perception is that there are a lot of groups who've come together with shared vision and shared um, passion about being more inclusive and really trying to do things to acknowledge diversity and inclusion. Mm. And I think finding a tribe, you know, I I would say anyone in an academic institution and absolutely men as well, but, you know, if you're applying for promotion and you feel really miserable, you know, academia is a very hierarchical, competitive, individualistic pursuit and and applying for promotion is something that can be really, really um, demoralising and disheartening. Certainly here at the University of Melbourne, you know, there are programs you can join to get mentoring, to get support. I think just having people around you who feel the same, some mm. of the same barriers and some of the same limitations you do, that would be my main advice. Find a tribe um, and recognize that if you are perceiving barriers, they may well be real. It's yeah. probably not in your own head. There are certainly a whole lot of systemic barriers, I think, to women and non-binary people succeeding in some of the uh, endeavors that, that we care about. And and as I said, I'm speaking to you as a white, cisgender, heterosexual, English-speaking woman. I recognize my privilege at so many levels. But even for me, there's absolutely been barriers. I have tough. And, and I guess also because my experience is that a lot of women focus on things like teaching and engagement, not to say there aren't utterly brilliant um, women researchers out there. Of course there are. But you know, if you look at teaching specialists in, in many universities, it's often the women who identify as, I love teaching, I want to do more teaching. But those career paths, at least until recently, have been a little bit harder to, to visualise getting to mm. senior positions when actually what you want to spend your time doing is teaching rather than research. 
Where to- <laughs> <laughs> the sigh. The I know, <laughs> I know. It's awful. It's awful. Um, I'm thinking about the listeners you mentioned who maybe have tried and haven't been able to mm. find something in their own university or near to them. And it feels almost a bit crass to, to talk about benefits post-COVID. But one mm. of the things uh, a lot of people I know have been able to, I guess, take advantage of is the way the world's opened up. And so I guess if, if you are listening to this and you've tried and you haven't found a, the right kind of network, the right mm. kind of group in your you know local geographic environment, this is one thing that's open to us now. You can connect with people all around the world. And you did mention Homeward Bound is open to it's global, right? Yep, absolutely. I mean, there you know, there's an application process to become a participant. Not everybody gets selected. It's quite competitive, but it's absolutely a global initiative. And I would really encourage anyone who has this perception that, look, I am already operating as a leader, but I would like to improve those leadership skills. And I would really encourage you to, to look up Homeward Bound and see if the message of Homeward Bound resonates with you, because some of the most extraordinary people I've ever met and I have the great privilege of calling friends and colleagues the people I've met through Homeward Bound. A moment ago, you mentioned, you know, even if you're a little bit more senior in your career, if you're taking on leadership for the first time, there may be challenges, there may be barriers. I think a lot of this conversation, we've probably been imagining researchers a bit earlier in their career, but Mm -hmm. I I know plenty of people who are are stepping into the position of a lab head for the first time, say, or maybe they're the leader of a a research group or a research project. They still may be in the situation where they feel a little bit out in the wilderness and they Mm -hmm. haven't had that kind of comms training or even leadership training. So what can they do? How can they get started if they feel they're a bit behind the eight ball? Well, I think first of all, be kind to yourself. It's not your fault you haven't had that Mm. training. It probably hasn't been offered to you. Or even if it was, you probably felt so stressed by having to build your track record that you didn't feel you could possibly take advantage of that training. So the first thing is just let yourself off the hook. Fine that you haven't done it yet. Just start now. And so at that point, it's going back to what we said before, you know, look, are there courses available? Are there workshops? Are there podcasts? Are there books? I'm really happy for anyone to get in touch with me and for us to have a chat about what steps somebody might take about how to kind of improve, you know, those skills. But it's never too late. And like I said before, you know, it's it's practice makes perfect. You're always going to be developing those skills. And I guess I would say that my perception is as you move into leadership roles, if you are a new lab head or whatever, you know, an associate dean somewhere or whatever it is, I really think that, well, I can only speak for myself, but I think academia has the capacity to make us really focus on our kind of outputs as individuals. You know, you are building a track record. You need to be aware of your metrics, all of those things. I think leadership really is about creating a ladder to bring other people up. And so if you are in a position that you could provide communication training for people in your team, you know, I think that's one of the best things that you could do. A lab head who says, I'm learning this too, but I think it's really important that we all have the skills to share our work with different audiences in different ways. Let's get some training together. I mean, a lab head who shows that they're going to prioritize an hour to go to a session on how to give a better talk, that is incredible role modeling for the rest of the people in that group. And here I'm thinking specifically of Professor Andrew Pask, who I ran a session for his lab group not that long ago. He is one of the busiest, most in-demand people I have ever met who is already an incredibly skilled communicator. 
But he rocked up and sat through me running a workshop, not because he didn't already know everything I said, but because he, I mean, I don't know if this was a conscious decision or not, I didn't discuss it with him, but my perception was he thought it was important to role model to his group that this sort of training is important. I mean, I think that's remarkable leadership. 100%. I think every researcher I've interviewed for this show so far has said something to the effect of it's part of the job. And I think Mm. even you mentioned it earlier in this episode. But there is a challenge attached to that because you mentioned Andrew is super, super busy. He's juggling a million things. And I think about the individual researcher, they need to get through their week. There's the administrative things they need to do on top of the actual research activities. They've got to publish, they've got to speak, they've got to do all these things. And if we zoom out to the organization itself, they're thinking about funding. Yep, absolutely. And every research organization I've talked to has acknowledged it. Yes, this is really, really important. It's just a little bit hard to find but. the time. And it, the But, yes, it's hard to find the time and the money. So mm. let's open up this conversation to how do we create the space for people to do this important work like Professor Pask is able mm. to do. I mean, I think you've really hit the nail on the head and this is something I spend a lot of time thinking and, and talking about because... These people may exist, but I've never met one yet. I've never come across someone who said, oh, no, I just don't care. I don't care about making my work accessible. I don't care about people other than fellow scientists. I don't care what people think. I just want to do my research. You know, most people, I think, like I said, they've gone into this field because they want to make a difference. They have certainly a reasonable understanding of the fact that publishing, um, you know, communicating with other academics is only part of it. But the problem is that people are really drowning in workload. So I've just had this most remarkable experience of being pretty much cut off for for a month. You know, I haven't, I still haven't looked at my emails. I'm avoiding them for another 24 hours or so. And the joy that comes with that kind of opening up, someone on the ship described it as an opening of the aperture, Mm. you know, just going from looking down into your inbox and, and all of the constant demands and the constant tasks and feeling overwhelmed and time pressured all the time. That huge luxury I've just had of kind of just taking a step back and looking at to the horizon mm. and thinking, who am I? What do I want to contribute to the world? What are my priorities? I think most people would say that communicating their work more broadly is absolutely a priority. But when push comes to shove, we all need to sleep. Many of us have people we love. Hopefully everyone has people they love that they want to spend time with. Something has to give. And if the reward structures within an organization or a sector like academia mean that what you're judged on is far more, how much money have you brought in? How many papers have you published? What are your citation metrics? What's your H index? You know, all of those things, something has to give. And I think often it is the kind of more public communication. I think it's shifting. It's absolutely shifting. Certainly here at the University of Melbourne, you know, our annual performance reviews now absolutely do include conversations about engagement and kind of serving, you know, the society and the community that we operate in. Um, I do think it's shifting. I don't want to pretend that it's still ignored, but I do still think particularly early career researchers who are applying for grants, you know, applying for DECRAs, whatever it is they're applying for, where they know their track record is really, really important. I think you can absolutely be forgiven for saying, I'm going to get more bang for my buck writing another paper than I am going to get going into a primary school and changing some kids' lives. So I think it's absolutely about the reward structures And just the time, we need to find a way to cut down on some of the administrative tasks that can just suck the life out of a person. I mean, I know people across all sectors probably have exactly the same experience. I just think how much time people spend doing work that probably doesn't have the biggest impact it possibly could. And I think that's really frustrating. 
Okay, so let's try and pull some of those threads together. I'm thinking about prioritization. Mm -hmm. So I know when you're overwhelmed, you can kind of end up just on autopilot a little bit and just following the same cadence you have been for the last few years. Yep. And particularly if you're surrounded by people who are doing all the same activities, the status quo is a really powerful influencer. Mm. So if you can take some time out and do some prioritization and think about, well, what's the relative value of each of these activities I'm dedicating time to? Perhaps that's yep. one avenue you can explore. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's about, and again, this is going to sound very much like someone who's just had the you know, great luxury of, of a break from work. And I, you know, so sorry if I'm sounding like I'm a bit, you know, <laughs> off the planet, but taking the time to connect with things like what your personal values are, you know, at the end of the day, what really, really matters to you. If things all fall apart and you have to make decisions based on what you really deeply care about, what are those values? And writing them down somewhere and returning to them and allowing them to help you design a strategy for how you spend your time. You know, if you can take half an hour, an hour, a few hours a day, you know, if you can take some time, um, and one of my colleagues in Homeward Bound, an extraordinary strategist, um, her name is Kit Jackson, and she works with all of the participants and the faculty in Homeward Bound to write personal strategy maps. And she asks really hard questions, you know, so you identify your values you identify what your priorities are that are in line with those values, which is kind of easy. You know, that sort of can be a bit weasel wordy, right? But when Kit then says, no, no, what you have to do is actually tell me what behaviours support or obstruct you living according to those values when you actually get down into the nitty gritty of it. And at that point, I think most people would probably say, you know, one of my values is, um, you know, equity or making a difference or, I mean, everyone's values are absolutely their own. But at that point, it becomes harder to justify some of the things we spend our times on, um, our time on, sorry, and becomes easy. You know, if you actually spend time writing it down and it's in black and white in front of you, um, this is for me, you know, having worked with Kit for a few years now and just seeing that if I actually write it down, it becomes much easier to make better decisions about how I spend my time because I'm clear on what actually matters to me. Beautiful. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't appeal to some people, but if any of that resonates with you, if you've never done the values exercise, I mean, lots of workshops do it. It's pretty straightforward. You have a piece of paper with, you know, a hundred different values written down. You spend some quiet time looking at them all. You choose the ones that resonate with you most. You whittle them down. Ideally, you know, you end up with two or three core values. And then the idea is that those inform your decision making at at, at the biggest, most impactful level and at the smallest level. I think the key here that you've touched on is linking the value with the behavior. Mm. And to bring it back to what you said earlier about reward structures, okay, you may not be able to change the entire sector, yep. but you can have a positive influence on your research group or the organization Absolutely. you're part of. Um, I spoke a few weeks ago with Dr. Simona Carbone, and I know that's, this is what she does in her own lab. You know, mm-hmm. They establish the team's values and they reinforce it through defining what behaviors represent those values and rewarding yep. those behaviors. Yeah. It can be done. Yeah, it absolutely can be done. And I know other academics who've done exactly the same thing within their lab groups. And it just takes some leadership at some level. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be the lab head. It can be somebody within the lab to put their hand up and say, could I run a lab meeting on this? I think this is really important. I think it will really help us if we're all aligned and clear on what our values are. I, I did the exercise with my team. I run a really little team 
Uh, so useful because we each shared what our values were and we talked through them. And it's wonderful. Now I know that, you know, this person, a core value is this. And like, okay, so that, that, that um, informs how I work with this person yeah. and how I might manage, you know, our workload with this person. Like, if, yeah, I would say to everyone, if you've never done that exercise, working out what your values are and then taking that next step of what the values aligned behaviours look like, it's, it's really worth investing the time. Totally agree. I did a similar exercise. I took one from uh, Brene Brown. Ah, we love Brene <laughs> Brown. Yes. <laughs> the, the book was Dare to Lead, if uh, yeah. any listeners want to check it out. Great book. And, you know, this is kind of what I do as my bread and butter, helping mm. teams think about their values and their mission and all that. So I was like, oh, surely I don't need to do it. But I yeah. gave it a go and it really was insightful and it got me to think about the way that I work. Because one of my top two values is collaborate. Mm. And why would I go off and try and work on my own if that's core to who I am? And so now I've just fully embraced it and everything I do is facilitating or working with others. Yeah. And I think about the rate of burnout in the research space. And if you're listening to this and you're feeling exhausted and overwhelmed by the amount of things you feel you have to do, perhaps that means you are a little bit out of alignment with what you should be doing and just taking a bit of time and space to reflect on this can help you make some decisions which might, you know, be positive for the future. I, I think that's such a good point, Chris, because I think everyone, you know, most people I know are not necessarily burnt out but deeply, deeply exhausted. I think the last four years have been hugely challenging mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, but but there may be additional exhaustion because actually you're spending your precious time and energy on things that don't actually align. And let's be clear, it's a privilege to do work Yes, that is values-aligned work. A lot of people in the world do not have that option. They just need to make some money somehow. So, you know, let's be clear how privileged we are. But if you have that privilege, then let's use it to do valuable work that can make a difference in the world and that, that you know, that matters to you. I think that's really important. And I love that you talked about Brené Brown because you won't be surprised that I'm a huge fan. And yes. in Comewood Bound, we use a lot of Brene Brown's work, we talk about braving, all sorts of things. But one of her sayings that I think is just so useful um, is clear is kind mm, I love when that. it comes to communicating. And I think someone who's listening who is in a leadership position, you know, I think one of the reasons why researchers often end up so exhausted is because they're just really sure what's expected of them. I mean, at the, at the top level, of course, we know what's expected. Bring in money, do the work, publish the papers, you know, of course it's clear, but then I think one of the problems with academia is that it's never enough. You know, you're always made to feel that if you just published a bit more, did a bit more, you'd be better. So there's that sense of, you know, never being good enough and, and you know, really building this kind of whole comparison culture and this, this culture of imposterism. I think for anyone listening, you know, the more clear we can be with the people around us about what their priorities are or what, you know, what needs to be done, what's the most urgent, what's not. Um, how can we prioritise our time better? I think just that whole idea of clear is kind. It's so helpful. And sometimes it's scary, right? Plain mm. speaking. We're all very good at speaking around things. You know, there's a lot of training out there for having difficult conversations. Yeah. But I think taking advantage of that training and kind of just being a bit courageous in how we interact with other people, you know, that it's not just research communication in terms of sharing ideas. It's also how we communicate within, you know, interpersonal communication. I love this so much. One of the phrases um, I'm known for with the people I work closely with is, I'm just going to throw a hand grenade into the conversation now. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> just to flag, I'm going to say something which is a little bit scary, but we need to get it out in the yeah, open. Yeah. And I think 
it's great we live in a time where there are resources there are great people like Brene Brown who can mm. help us do this because I don't I'm not aware of uh, people being taught this in in primary school or elementary school unfortunately no but like like exactly what you've just said is so helpful isn't it flagging is yeah. something we we talked about a lot on the ship in homeward bound that just highlighting to people what you know is so one of the other things that Brene Brown talks about is rumbling you know I just yeah. can we just rumble about this it means That's we're it. not trying to make a decision we're going to, you know, diverse opinions are going to be welcome. They're not going to be judged. You know, can we rumble on this? Or the whole idea of, you know, we're going to have to circle back to that. And I know some people go, oh, that's such, you know, ridiculous language. And that language, some people seem to get a bit offended by that language. But use other language if you want. Sure. But just have a shared language with your team that means it's clear. Is this a decision-making conversation? Is this a discussion conversation? Are, diff- uh, you know, diverse opinions welcome here? Can I feel safe saying I, th- I see that really differently to you? Can we come back to it later? You know, just, or, you know, here's a hand grenade. You know, just flagging what this is about gives people the safety to be able to communicate clearly without being really, really anxious that, you know, their opinions aren't going to be welcome or they're going to be shot down by people who are more senior to them or whatever, you know, whatever the situation is. And you mentioned a few times the word privilege and how it is a very privileged position if you can even think about these things Mm -hmm. at all when it comes to your vocation. But you've also talked a lot about impact. And I think the people listening to this show are listening because they do want to see a positive change in the world. Mm. And this is probably going to sound quite naff, but the old uh, analogy of you've got to put your oxygen mask on first. If you really do want to see a positive change in the world spring from your work, I think it really is critical to think about this stuff and Mm. look after yourself and look after your colleagues, right? 100%. And and I guess one of the things that I kind of come up against often is I'm a hugely positive, optimistic person. Ask anyone who's just spent a month on a ship with me. Like I don't really ever, I'm very fortunate. I, I, I don't have to work hard to feel positive and optimistic. And I'm very aware that sometimes I can portray research communication is really easy. Oh, you just go out and chat. It'll be fine. And of course, it's not always fine. Mm. You know, there are plenty of researchers who've been trolled, who Mm. have had really negative experiences, you know, all sorts of bad things can happen. So just to be clear, even though I like to um, encourage and put a positive spin on all of the wonderful things that can happen if you you are brave and you share your, your work more broadly, of course, things can go wrong. And it's really important that people have safety around them. You know, if you're being trolled, then it's really important to know what to do about that. And there will be people in any organisation, any institution you you are a part of who can give you advice on that. And, you know, the golden rules are don't feed the trolls, block if you need to, pull in, you know, hire support if you need to. Generally, it's much better if you don't respond to somebody who's trolling for you, but you can have a trusted community of people who can come in on your behalf and point out you know, that what you're saying is actually correct. I mean, there are, there are ways to manage it, but yeah, I, I do recognize that sometimes it might sound like I'm just saying, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be great. It'll be wonderful. There are so many benefits, but of course you've got to look after yourself. Yeah. The whole oxygen masking is really important. And there may be times when it's not safe. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of working with women from all over the world. And in some countries it is not safe mm. for a woman to speak up. Had a fascinating conversation. And this is actually on the previous Homeward Bound Voyage I was part of so back in 2019, this amazing um, scientist. And so the stream that I teach as part of um, in Homeward Bound is about visibility and impact. And we're talking about, you know, how important it is to identify the people who you want to influence and being visible to those people and how you might go about doing that and what your goals are and who the audiences are and all that stuff. Um, and her point to me was, yeah, but in my culture, I need to do all of that by stealth. 
Like I cannot oh, be wow. visible. It's it's not safe for me to be visible um, as a as a woman in where I work. And you know that really made me kind of step back and go, yeah, Jen, just be really careful when you talk about mm. this stuff. And you know, sometimes I feel like I'm at risk of kind of um, being a bit evangelical when I talk about all of the benefits that can come from sharing your work more broadly. And that's not always the case. And people have to know that maybe for them it's not safe. But you know, it's this is not about you know be giving a TED talk or mm. whatever it is. Visibility can be making a meeting time with somebody in your organisation who has the power to connect you with somebody. You know, visibility is not always big picture visibility. And so another quote that we use a lot, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it, but I can give it to you afterwards. Um, visibility without value is vanity. Wow. So, you know, it's not about being visible for its own sake. This is not about how many Instagram followers you have. It's about creating value for yourself and for the communities that you serve. And so visibility might be, it might be by stealth for you. Mm. Wow, there's so much in what you just said. I love that quote. It's a heartbreaking story you shared. Mm. Um, I do hope if there's anyone listening who feels that way, they can tap into some support and know that you're yeah. not alone mm. because that's it's a hard road. Yeah, and it's very different for different people, you know, and, and I think research communication can be such a valuable part of anybody's career and it absolutely can form part of you know, a promotion case for anyone listening, you know, it really is mm. changing. I really have seen major changes. Um, I don't think it's an optional extra anymore. I think it's absolutely part of what we need to be doing. But just be aware that, that research communication and visibility can look very different for different people. And it just comes down to, again, being strategic. What aligns with what you care about and what goals are you trying to achieve? Because there are some really big goals that require very visible visibility and others that just won't, and that's, that's okay. Now, we've spoken a lot about the perspective of an individual researcher moving up through their career, wanting to generate as much impact as possible. But let's zoom out and think about research organizations because I know there are research centers where they might have one comms officer or they might have a center manager who's doing some engagement activities. What would you like to see structurally in research organizations to support not just the individual efforts of a single researcher, but I guess the mission of that organization as a whole? And I'd love to say a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Shall we make a but, list? <laughs> yeah, let's make a list. I mean, let's be real. I understand that any organisation is dealing with with lots of competing demands. Um, and I think, you know, it's really naive to think that me just saying, everybody should prioritise communication. Like, I understand there are many competing priorities. There's not always enough funding. There are all sorts of KPIs that organisations have to meet. You know, it's a complex, busy landscape. But I would just love to see organisations of their own clearly articulated values and strategies that I would hope would include something about we are doing work for the greater good. Mm. You know, we are supported by a society around us and in turn we are here to serve and support that society. And so what does that look like? That looks like making what we do more accessible, being more inclusive in how we operate. And that could look like all sorts of different 
outputs and all sorts of different opportunities. And you know, let's you know, let's be honest. Lots of organisations do do fantastic. They have public lectures. They have, you know, it's not like we're we're you know not doing some of this. But I would just love any researcher in any organisation who is interested in becoming a more skilled communicator or feels drawn to spending some of their time doing that 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 person is is supported mm. supported with time supported with um you know we, we have such a terrible tall poppy you know syndrome in Australia that and I think again this is decreasing but I'm sure it still exists that somebody who does go out and do a lot of media might be seen to be you know oh you know that person's I don't even know what derogatory language people use but you know there is a bit of a sense of Somebody who has a press release mm. ends up all over the media. You know that they're not doing proper work, or it's not a good use of their time. I just like to think that anyone, yeah, can feel supported and feel like it is a legitimate use of their time, and it will be a valued contribution that is perceived as the work of this organisation, rather than oh yeah, that person loves talking to the radio. Here they go again. I totally agree. I'd love to see more support, and I think even thinking about the sustainability of your research organization. Let's say there is someone who's really good at public engagement and maybe there are some feelings of dissatisfaction. Why is this person always in the spotlight? Yeah. I think there are other risks um, beneath just the political and interpersonal um, Mm. problems that can arise. If you want your research organization to survive beyond the initial five years or whatever you have funded in the Mm. first instance, you're going to need more than just one hero in the spotlight. And I think the more you have a team which can communicate and engage on behalf of your organization, the stronger and more resilient you're going to be, right? Yeah, 100%. And I guess I would also say, you know, there may be people in that organization and the last thing they want to do is be responsible for any kind of external communication. And I don't believe people should be made to do it. Mm. But I do think that everyone should be given some sort of training because it may be that even if you perceive yourself as a someone who the last thing you would ever want to do is do any form of public communicating, it may be that there comes a time when you really have to. Yeah. Um, and so being, uh, having had access to some training so that you have some sense of, I'm willing to do this. It may not be my favorite thing. I, I have a perception that it's not something that I'm, super skilled at, but I know deep down that if I'm called on to do X, I understand the basics of let's have an opening hook so that I engage an audience's attention. Let's be really mindful of making clear the big picture value of what I'm doing and not getting caught up in all of the the details and the minutiae. Let's have some sense of narrative and the idea that people aren't convinced by facts, they're convinced by some sort of a story. You know, all of those basic tenets of good communication, which most people kind of know, but if you don't practice it and, and the only communicating you ever do is with other specialists in your field where you can just absolutely use jargon all the time as a shortcut and people are deeply, deeply interested and invested in what you're doing and you don't have to make any sort of, um, you know, value statement because people will just, you know, I think one of the risks in science is that because scientists are generally, and this is why I love scientists so much, they love what they're doing. You know, they just find whatever it is that they're working on so deeply fascinating that they'd be happy to spend their life on it. Um, And there's the risk that you think everyone else finds what you do just as fascinating. And of course they don't. And so, you know, giving people the opportunity to practice Mm. talking or writing about their work in a way that, you know, not defensive, not like here I'm going to prove to you why this is worth doing, but just finding the ways 
that you can bring other people in to find something interesting rather than just arrogantly assuming that people are going to all find it as interesting as you do. Could not agree more with that. And you mentioned uh, the researcher who may not feel comfortable and they may find themselves in a situation where they have to do it. One thing I'd love to add is you don't have to feel alone, Mm. right? Researchers, they're used to publishing with multiple authors. They're used to going in for grants as part of a team. Collaboration is very normal in this space. And the same thing can apply to your communications and engagement. You can think about a strengths-based approach. Maybe you're really great at written communication and maybe one of your colleagues is really great at live presentation. Figure out what are the strengths you have in your organization. If you have a comms officer or, you know, a head of strategy and engagement, you can define ways of working that everyone can bring their best and you can have something greater than the sum of the parts. That was so corny, Jen. What did no, I just No, it wasn't corny at all. I think it's really true. And I think it can even be more practical than that, rather than just kind of stepping back and doing a, some sort of a strengths-based analysis mm. and, you know, assigning people to different roles. If someone asks you to do an interview, say, yeah, I'd love to. Can I bring my colleague? Fantastic. You know, and actually have a conversation. We had the um, great fun of doing some interviews for a documentary uh, when we first got back from Antarctica. So we're in Ushuaia, this stunning, stunning Argentinian town, and we know we're doing these interviews. And, and they were really smart. They interviewed us in pairs. And I think the quality of what we shared and talked about, you know, having just got off this ship and just being so kind of emotionally raw and just full of this experience. If I'd been interviewed on my own, I don't know that Mm. I would have been nearly as able to express myself and my thoughts and my feelings and and what I was feeling, you know, what was going on for me. But because the two of us, um, my partner in, in crime, Fern Hames, who's an extraordinary communicator and we were teaching together, they interviewed us together. And we were able to have a conversation and it was just a conversation that had a few prompting questions and was filmed. That was gold, much more so than if we'd been alone. So if you get asked to do something, say, yep, love to. Can I bring my colleague and then see if you can make it a conversation rather than you being, you know, just forced to do an interview on your own. 100% agree with that. Now, this is where I may be uh, giving a quote, which I'm not 100% on their attribution. (laughs) I think this is from Jonathan Starks. He's, a, I guess, a a business consultant. Yeah. And one thing I I love that he says from time to time is, you know, people talk about getting writer's block, but you very rarely hear about people getting speaker's block. Mm. And usually that's because you're talking to a specific person and you can have a dialogue and you can really harness that, I think, in the way that you're talking about. Bring someone with you to an interview, go up on stage and have a conversation. All of a sudden things are going to flow a lot more easily. Absolutely. And I'd also say if if there's something you need to write, and you're really, really, really struggling to write it, grab your phone, go for a walk, and just talk to yourself. No one will know that you're talking to yourself. They'll just think you're having a phone call. You know, just have a pair of headphones and a microphone. Just talk to yourself, transcribe that, and it won't be anywhere near perfect, but it could be a really good first draft. And just picture yourself, you know, or indeed talk to somebody, you know, if it's easier to talk to somebody rather than talking to yourself, but just talk it first you're going to end up with far a far more conversational, understandable piece of writing if it started its life as a spoken thing rather than a written thing. 100%. That is a tip I very frequently give uh, yeah. academics. I love that. <laughs> now, you've been very generous with your time. I want to wrap it up in a second. But before we do, there may be listeners out there who are feeling really inspired by this conversation. Oh, gosh, let's hope let's so. Hope. Woohoo! And if you're not, really sorry. Should I take that again? <laughs> Let's let's assume they're inspired, but in particular, maybe some are even imagining a future as a professional science communicator or research communicator. Yeah. 
where should they start? The first piece of advice would be to say, you, if you go looking, you may not find that there are that many jobs that have the title mm. science communicator or research communicator, but all is not lost. There are very, very many jobs out there that involve, and again, you know, the little world I operate in is science. There are so many jobs out there that involve communicating science even if that's not the title. So I would say just be really open-minded in your thinking. Um, and I think it's really important to spend some time yourself thinking about what do I actually want to spend mm. my time doing? Do you want to be in front of a group of children? Do you want to be in front of a group of adults? Do you want to be doing strategic work behind the scenes? Do you want to be writing for a magazine? Do you want to be writing policy documents? You know, there are many, many ways to work as a communicator um, and you have to be clear, what is it that you want to do? And I've had this conversation with so many students and it turns out for some of them, they want to be high school science teachers. You know, that's what they want to do. They want to be inspiring young people to pursue science. So think, be really open-minded and, and think very broadly in what these jobs might look like. Be very clear on what it is that you want to spend your time doing and then start to create evidence that you can do that thing. That would be my main advice. So if you want to be making videos, you need to have, you know, whether it's TikTok or YouTube, you need to be pumping out content. You need to be honing your skill. You know, there's plenty of lovely, you know, moral stories out there that you don't create high quality products by slaving away on one thing for, mm. for days, weeks, months. You get high quality products by making a million of them. You know, you develop your skills by just trying new things all the time, getting feedback, trying it again. So if you want to be out there writing, if you want to be a journalist, make sure you've got a portfolio of your writing and try and get stuff published. You know, if you want to be a social media manager, make sure you're honing your skills, writing really witty, you know, fabulous, short, concise, whatever it is, you know, um, captions for social media, whatever it is, don't wait to get a job to learn those skills. Mm. Make sure you are honing your skills now. And there's so much advice, you know, whether it's online, whether it's reading books, listening to podcasts, you know, you can... There are so many things you can learn and then you just have to practice over and over again so that when you go for a job and someone says, so what experience do you have here? Even if you're new to this job market and you haven't had a job that has paid you to do these things before, you can show that you have created portfolios of work doing those things. I think that's really, really important. And, and other than that, just absolutely build your networks. Mm. So, you know, there are, there are communication organisations out there. For me, it's the Australian Science Communicators, you know, find ways. Again, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about finding your tribe, finding mm. your people. I think the only way we find the jobs that we want to do is to know lots and lots of people and be brave. You know, we have a, um, we have a podcast episode all about how to network because for some people, that's just the most frightening, awful thing imaginable. But there are, there are skills and strategies and tactics you can use, even if you perceive yourself to be quite shy or introverted. There are ways to network. And if you don't network and you don't have you know, a good kind of group of people out there who are doing things that you're interested in and know what you're interested in, I think it's really hard to get jobs. Really, really hard. Jen, that was a beautiful summer. I've got a list in front of me uh, throughout the conversation. I'm scribbling all the key points <laughs> to wrap it. And you just covered all of them. Fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for your time and all the valuable advice you've shared. People should book a workshop with you and your team, right? Yeah, absolutely. Get in touch. And Chris, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about stuff that I really care about. I feel so fortunate to do work um, that, that I feel is really useful, important work. It's work that brings me a lot of joy and having the opportunity to sit down and talk about it with someone as 
articulate and knowledgeable as you. It's it's pretty fun. So thank you. Thank you. This has been an absolute joy. <laughs> thank you, Ten. You've been listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Parlow. Thanks again to Associate Professor Jen Martin for all those amazing tips. Make sure you check out her podcast, Let's Talk SciComm. And if you'd like to connect with her, you can find her on the socials at SciDocMartin. Details for all this will be in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or via my website, amplifyingresearch.com. I'd like to acknowledge that I produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Big thank you to Maya Tarrell and Michelle Joy for being consulting producers on this show. Our theme song is by La Boucle, and our interstitial music is by Blue Steel, both courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Stay tuned for another episode next week. For the first 12 episodes, I'm going to be releasing the show weekly and then switching to every other week as I have quite a few other exciting things I'm going to be developing alongside this show. Thanks for listening, friends, and as always, stay curious.